Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Brothers F Podcast. Uh, with me here are uh, Diego and Andres, and uh, we're here to talk about a book by the great uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb called Fooled by Randomness, which uh, I believe is the first part of a set of books that uh, the author likes to call the Inserto, uh, which I think that's that must be some kind of Latin thing for like I doubt or something or doubt or I don't know. All right. Uh, anyone else there? Mm-hmm. Yep. Your initial thoughts on the book, I suppose. Um, My initial thoughts on the book? I thought it was an amazing... I, God, I, that sounds so painful. I thought it was <laughs> a good book. I really did. I thought it was incredible. Um, it was I, a good I, I really enjoyed it, and I explain why. For It's actually like not some deep intellectual reason. It's uh, some shallow emotional reason, but I, I want to hear your takes first. Oh, I guess we should explain a little bit about who this guy is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, you have to explain. You know, like army helicopter covering above. All right, it's all right. We can just like give it a long pause and then cut that thing out when it comes to it. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's part of the experience. Yeah, the we'll army helicopter. The authentic FDC family experience. Yeah. 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 Army right. helicopter. Yeah. You have but, um, like the, the first episode we recorded, there was uh, a fire was alarm. A, yeah. And we never get those fire. either. What is, what is it going to escalate to next time? I don't know. It's, it's, so it went from fire alarm to army helicopter to. You're gonna, you're gonna get, you're gonna get maybe nuclear bomb warning. I don't know. In that case, maybe I should just stay put because I don't think there's really anything I can do. Oh, God. All right, that's two more. But uh, back to Nassim. Uh, <laughs> I'm not like some uh, Talib uh, biographical expert, but here's what I know about him. He is an ex-trader uh, who's made what some people call uh, FU money, or uh, there's a more vulgar version of that that I'm going to not say on the podcast so uh, our uh, parents don't get mad at us. He's a he's a famous writer now. He's written some major bestsellers. Uh, I think he really rose to prominence with a book called The Black Swan, which we're not discussing today, but is, that is an important concept in in the book, which we are discussing today, uh, Fooled by Randomness. He has a very uh, he's a very active Twitter account on which he likes to pick fights. He has a reputation. Right? He has a reputation. Yeah. I've never followed him on Twitter, and. I already know that his he just is a kind of aggressive guy. Extremely he's, he's, aggressive. He goes after public intellectuals. Um, he's, he's a pretty brilliant guy, but uh, yeah, he, he does not hold back on Twitter. Yeah, um, I'm not, I looked I looked I'm, it up beforehand. Down there, like he will he will go after people who are less famous. Than him. Or yeah. I don't know, maybe that's not right. I mean, I, I can anyway. He's he he's not afraid to to say what he thinks. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, like it adds a lot of, I, I feel like, like that's cool to a certain point, right? Because I don't know, sometimes I feel like a lot of, a lot of discussions in school, people sort of hold back and try to be super nice, right? Like, great, this is courteous and, and like, all right. But it'd be a lot more fun if people just really like screamed at each other and like got into the arguments, you know what I mean? So I respect uh... 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, uh, I certainly uh, don't mind it insofar as he's not punching down. Um, I mean, he, one of his favorite uh, targets is uh, Steve Pinker, who I personally think is a little bit annoying. Um, and uh, he also likes to go after Richard Dawkins. Uh, Jordan Peterson, he's not a fan of Jordan Peterson. Interesting. Uh, famously, also, uh, not a COVID skeptic, which will make total sense after we discuss the book a little more. Uh, and for, for people who are listening, uh, perhaps later, COVID is, refers to the COVID-19 virus, which uh, threw the world into turmoil in 2020. I mean, come on, friend. Nobody's going to forget about that, right? This is huge. Uh, well, you, never, you never know. In five years, people may not, uh, people may not remember, or maybe younger listeners will not remember. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Maybe it... it it makes it doesn't make sense to give that context, but history will be my judge. <laughs> According to Olive, maybe history is not the best judge. Well, let's let's dive into that then. I forget that part of the book actually. Where does he say that? Well, his his, his so this is the concept where he says about probabilistic thinking, right? You can't judge things by what actually happened or decisions by what actually happened after the decision. You have to you have to judge the decision based on what you knew at the time and what the probabilities were at the time. Um, yeah, is this really yeah, yeah, yeah. That, he's talking about how you can't just like look at a bunch of past events and say, okay, great, so I know all the things that could happen, right? Um, yeah, he, he kind of talks about like hindsight being twenty twenty when exactly what Francisco mentioned. Um, you have to look at the decision based on, you know, the probabilities or the information that they had at the time of the decision, not post the decision. So, you know, the classic, uh, I think they call it Monday morning quarterback uh, syndrome, you know, kind of apply that here, you know, uh, people talk about, oh, you know, you should have done this. Oh, what, what an idiot, you know, anyone could have seen this coming. Well, that, that that's not necessarily true and usually isn't true as he kind of, goes on to describe right the book. so one of the key concepts in the book and this sounds like a cliche but the way he expresses it is utterly brilliant is that everything seems much less random than it is in hindsight so uh let's let's take um why a particular person is a success so one one uh, little moment that really stuck out to me from the book when he's discussing Warren Buffett, I think in the preface, actually, he's discussing Buffett and reactions to the book. And, or maybe he's not, but whatever. He's, he's saying, he's not saying that Warren Buffett isn't skilled. What he's saying is if you took the universe of investors and you just assigned success to them randomly, there would almost certainly be a person with a large enough group of investors that had the track record of Warren Buffett purely by chance. That's crazy, actually. I didn't read that preface, but but like this whole time I was thinking, like, what about Warren Buffett? You know, what about Warren Buffett? Track record of success going back through many, many events, many, many black swan events, as he likes to call them, right? Right. So, and again, he's not saying that everyone who's successful is just lucky. What he's saying is that with the benefit of hindsight, 
uh, or the handicap of hindsight as, as maybe he would see it, uh, you have to reserve judgment because there's a large degree of luck or randomness in any given outcome. So when you're, when you're considering uh, life paths, let's say you're considering being uh, three things, an entrepreneur, a rock star, and a dentist, right? You can't consider the successful rock star or the successful entrepreneur and compare them to the successful dentist. Because if you're thinking probabilistically, the dentist has a much lower ceiling, but he has a much better... Uh, Higher floor. Right. So, so the dentist, you know, as, as he says, on the high end, he's going to be a dentist on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and serve rich Manhattan clients. And on the lower end, he's going to be a in dentist a park in Yeah. But in, in measured probabilistically on a probabilistic accounting, the dentist is the richest person. Whereas the rock star, uh, it, you know, after the fact, ex post in hindsight, he may be the richest guy, right? He's got a, a pink Rolls Royce and adoring groupies and, you know, a, a, a nine figure net worth. And maybe the entrepreneur, the successful entrepreneur, you know, maybe he's even a billion. That's not the way to think about people's life decisions. Right. That if you if you consider the range of all possible worlds, uh, maybe there's many worlds in which Mark Zuckerberg is uh, just merely an upper middle class computer programmer. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely found that point pretty interesting, too. And yeah, it, it, it really is an interesting way to think about it and not and not something most people do to think about, you know, for every to go back on your example, I guess you could go with the rock star is the easy one, right? For every successful rock star, there are, you know, thousands of fledging, you know, failing bands or not failing, but bands that make zero money, you know, no money at all who can't even, you know, find gigs at the local bar or, you know, for every uh, entrepreneur, I mean, just think of how many startups fail, right? So even though you may look at Mark Zuckerberg, you know, one of the richest people in the world and think, wow, you know, wow, he's like, he's, he's got so much money. Like he, he chose the right career path, right? If you ran a Monte Carlo simulation, which he talks about, right? If you ran kind of the various different, ran his life, I don't know, millions of times, right? In some simulator, the reality is it's very likely that in most of those simulations, he comes out being, you know, a, maybe like you said, moderately successful entrepreneur or Maybe even just like a computer program at a company, uh, you know, a, a good computer programmer at a company. He's not going to be Mark, the Mark Zuckerberg we know today in every single simulation. He's only going to be the Mark Zuckerberg we know in this world and, you know, one of the millions of simulations. And so you have to view success in that standpoint. Whereas, you know, the dentist is going to be, if you take his life from the time he graduates dentist school, uh, dental school and run millions of simulations, he's going to be he's going to be just fine, right? As opposed to the rock star who is, you know, probably not going to be, Mick Jagger is not going to be Mick Jagger in every uh, every simulation. And that's just the different way and probably the correct way to think about things. No, oh, yeah, it throws cold water on all the people who like, you know, dream of, of being the next big startup. But I don't know if like the, if, if you sort of engage with the whole book, whether you could come away with the conclusion that it's, always a bad idea to try to be a rock star you know because he talks a lot about making about making i'm not sure if he uses these exact words but like asymmetric bets you know like 
like, okay, you know, unlikely that you'll become the rock star, but if you do make it, you're going to make it big, right? And that not just like making that one tiny one, but making like many of these throughout your life, throughout your career. So for him as a trader, it's like a bunch of weird companies or options, or I don't even know, I don't know finance. And you can, if you think about it in a person's life kind of perspective, right? And you see how it goes and maybe it starts to take off and maybe it doesn't. And then if you can see that it's going to flop, you ditch. And in your early 20s, you do a startup, right? Because, you know, you have some time and you see whether it takes off and maybe it doesn't take off. And if it doesn't, you switch, right? It's like, these are bets you can make without necessarily committing your whole life to them. The mistake would be to do so at the exclusion of other opportunities when it's obvious that they're going to fail. Well, the the, the, the other important concept uh, that he talks about is the risk of ruin. Another concept that goes along with the risk of ruin is the concept of uh, fat tails. Kurtosis. Kurtosis? Yeah, kurtosis is, right, if you look at a stream of returns, for all you finance listeners out there, right, if you look at a distribution, just think of a, you know, think of a normal distribution, right? And think of the tails getting fatter. Kurtosis is a measure of how fat the extremes are, how fat the tails are. Spread is a measure of, you know, how skew or skew is the me- is is a measure of how skewed the results are. Are they right skewed or left skewed? Kurtosis is how fat the tails are. So how many results do you have in the extremes? From the way the book reads, it sounds like the industry is just full of total dum-dums all over the place that are just making the same mistakes cycle after cycle after cycle, right? Like to what degree when you talk to people in the finance industry, are people like have have they have they sort of picked up these ideas and like internalized them such that people aren't making these dumb mistakes anymore? Or is it still the same old, same old, such that uh, sufficiently clever Nassim Taleb type investor can take advantage of them? Well, I guess um, you got to, finance is a very broad term, right? So there's lots of areas in finance and the area that he was working in was prop trading which is actually an area that has been, um, you know, that it still exists and it's, it, you know, it's still, it's still out there, but all the major banks had to close their prop trading down. And he describes it in the book, when you're a prop trader, uh, you're allowed to use your own money and, and you're keeping a portion of your, you're keeping a portion of your profits that you bring into your firm. You know, so to that extent, yes, right. He's playing, he, he has his own money in play, but I guess to open up the discussion a little, because he does talk about this quite a bit in his book, you know, like I think he went, I think he took a little bit of a simplistic approach and you guys can feel free to chime in here. Like I work with a lot of traders and he kind of painted a broad brush and I get it. He was in prop trading. So it's a very, in his niche, this is probably true, but you can talk to a lot of traders and they won't claim to know how to beat the market. (laughs) You know, they, they, they don't claim to be some superior source. You know, he talks about his uh, his neighbor, John, from New Jersey, you know, who didn't have a college degree or if he did, he went to some no-name college and he gained tons of money and then all of a sudden he lost it because he was a high-yield trader at the right time. Yeah, those trends happen. It's part of the economic cycle. And, you know, a smart trader will know that, you know, that wasn't his doing, right? Like right place, right time, and can identify those trends and, and, you know, protect himself. But most traders would not go claiming, oh, I knew the market. This is, this is, 
well, you know, th- th- this was all me. I-, I read something here. Yeah, there, there is that. I'm sure there are plenty of people who fall into the trap of thinking, look, I know every time there's a little dip, I got to buy whatever. But he came down a little harsh, I think, painted kind of a broad stroke. Um, in addition, like then he's like all these people reading the news to think they can get an edge star. I never read the news. Like, <laughs> you ever consider that these people on the train you're seeing reading the news maybe just want to know what's going on in the world? Like, I mean, not everyone's reading the news. In fact, I'm willing to bet 95% of people reading the news aren't reading the news to try to get some edge on the market. Like they want to know what's going on in the world. Like Nassim Nicholas Taleb, he's from Lebanon, right? Mm-hmm. There was recently a, a terrible explosion explosion there. And, and I bet you he's been reading up on the news a lot, right? Because he's genuinely interested in what's happening in his home country. And I yeah, think well, like, that's I kind of the reason a lot of people read the news. Finance out to a broader perspective is that like, like, I don't think he's against news in general. I think he just thinks we have too much of it. And that there are all these small little things that happen that we're desperate to try to extrapolate into broader trends when those broader trends may or may not exist. So I, I, he's definitely okay with the idea of like catching up on the Lebanese explosion. I think he would be against like catching up on every small little news story that happens to jump to the yeah, site. But to me, he just didn't go deep enough into that. He, he really painted a broad stroke when he was talking about the news. And, mm-hmm. and the reality is like, it, it, he, he just, he, he, there, there were parts like, first of all, I don't know why he referred to himself as some fictional character when we all know he was talking. Nero Tulip, NT, Nassim Taleb. It's, it's obviously him. He was a derivatives trader. Um, uh, it was obviously him. So I don't know why he did that. He could have just used his own name. He doesn't have to protect his own identity. But like, he's not the first one to invest solely in treasury, you know, treasury securities, right? Like, there's a lot of people who will allocate large portions of their portfolio to treasury securities and they're not idiots, you know, like, and, and there are people who allocate significant portions to the, you know, U.S. equity market. And the reality is he was a trader, what, in the 80s, 90s, if he had allocated more money into the stock market right now, right, he would have more money. Now, I get he gets more into depth there, like, well, if you had put a lot of money into the stock market in Russia in the 1920s, you know, well, then your paper would be worthless right now. That's true. And if you had done so, the, done the same thing for various other countries, that's the same thing. You would have just been lucky betting on the U.S. and the U.K. But even in the 1920s, the U.S. and the U.K. were the major powers. So he was like, I don't know. You guys chime in. I've been talking too much. Well, no, let's get you here. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, I don't need to add. You can, you can, say, your, you can say your point. Well, I mean, he'd be yelling at you right now, right? He'd be saying, you can't consider just what happened. You have to consider the probabilities given what you knew at the time. So I, I think he is in part shaped by the, the trauma of his family having uh, lost most of its wealth and prestige in the Lebanese Civil War, right? So they, they were accumulating assets, uh, you know, assets that had some risk like uh, equities, and uh, when the Civil War happened, they lost everything. So I think that in part that that life experience uh, shapes his uh, risk profile, right? He doesn't want to go through that same experience again of losing everything and having to, uh, you know, work for a corporation or as a janitor or live in a dowdy apartment in Athens or whatever he said about yeah. his uh, 
I mean, he, he says that, right? He says at some point, it was, like, that his philosophy was shaped by growing up in the middle of a civil war, right? And, like, it makes sense. It's, like, it's it's built around, like, okay, sometimes really crazy things that nobody expects to happen, happen. Like, I, one, of my, one, of my, one of my favorite parts of the book, I thought it was especially juicy, was the one where he went after two uh, economics Nobel Prize winners, or sorry, Nobel Memorial Prize winners, uh, because they came up with these fancy models of how their market was going to work. And he bet against them, as is his, his policies. He always bets against these things, being like at the status quo. And he made oodles of money. And then everybody, you know, everybody turns to him for advice. He just trashes on the Nobel Prize winners. He's like, yeah, they're stupid. You know, their models are wrong. And they say, well, no, but this was an extremely rare one-off event. And he was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like this is the thing right is like first off you don't know it was that rare it's because it's happened once you don't know what the distribution is but also like if your models can't account for these extremely random events which are high high impact then you have bad models right no that's true and, and he talks a lot about that in um black swan which uh we obviously won't go into in this podcast but that's one of his more famous books and definitely also worth a read um he does use the word at some point, which is interesting. So he, he's already like bouncing around the ideas in his head. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a very important concept that comes from Hume, I believe. He 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 says, and the uh, the 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 idea is that you know through empiricism, right, from going out and observing the world, which is called inductive reasoning. Right, as opposed to deductive reasoning, where you use logic or math to prove what must be true, he says it, it's almost impossible to prove something affirmatively. Right? Well, he says it is impossible. Hume is like you literally can never prove these things to be true. Right. So the classic example is the swans. Right? If you lived in Europe, you'd observe white swan after white swan after white swan, and through induction, you would conclude that swans are white until one day you finally make it to Australia and you see black swans. Um, so in this highly skeptical way of thinking, the past isn't really any guide to the future. Now, I mean, how far are we willing to take that? I mean, are we going to, are we going to doubt? Like, I don't know. You can't live your entire life without like inducing any sort of inferences about the way things are. I I mean, you know, it's just, and his point isn't that we shouldn't, I don't think it's just that we should maintain a certain amount of skepticism that our, our, I don't know, our ideas are, are, you should wrong. be, yeah. And you should be wise in, in what you induce and not go, uh, not go thinking that it's, uh, you know, not go making, you know, very critical decisions, whether they're financial or whatever it may be, right? Like, uh, I guess financial in this case is the easiest one, right? Because he references it a lot, right? You, you can't go creating a model, uh, assuming something's true with, you know, without really knowing something's true. And so, um, but I think in your day to day life, I think there's, I don't think he has any issue with you <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of making, um, making these decisions based on uh, the, you're right, Andrew, there are times in your life where you have to do that. 
But I think you're saying, you know, when you're running a corporation or a company or a portfolio or or whatever it is, anything of significance, forget finance, right? You know, we got to be careful about how we approach well, rank. What about when you're crossing the street? What if you observe that every time there's a red light, the car stops, the cars stop, and it's safe to cross, right? That's going to be true 99.99% of the time or higher. But the one time that someone decides to run a red light, it could kill you. And that's kind of his point about rare events is not only that the tails are fatter than we think, but also that the impact of the rare events is so powerful that it can ruin you. That when you're making decisions, you need to not, not only consider um, the rarity of the event, but the expected impact of the event. Right? If, 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 so in his uh, life as a trader, he was worried about the risk of blowing up and being kicked out of trading, which is a job he really enjoyed. So he was in it to stay in the profession. And the idea that he might someday be ruined and kicked out was such a risk that he took an extremely conservative approach to his, uh, his, his trading style. He took almost no risk, as close to no risk as you can take. Um, all right. Can we get into like the non-intellectual, uh, emotional reason I like the book? Yeah, sure. Hit us up. Hit us up. I loved his simultaneous disrespect for the wealthy and uh, the sort of moral ideology of capitalism, right? He talks about, uh, for example, Warren Buffett, and he says that he never understood all this admiration that's directed at Warren Buffett uh, over the fact that he's a billionaire who happens to live frugally. He says, you know, I must confess, I see no particular virtue in becoming rich for its own sake. <laughs> and you know what? To be honest, that has driven me crazy. There's this whole discourse out there of like moralized capitalism. Uh, and, and it's present in this other book he goes after called The Millionaire Next Door, where and he talks about the book as a as a cautionary tale about hindsight bias. Right. You can't just observe what happened to what these particular millionaires did and then conclude that the people who do that are going to become millionaires. Right. Yeah. You're not in the whole pool of people. But th this whole idea of like extreme frugality, not spending any money, you know, the salt of the earth, small businessman who works himself to the bone trying to advance his business. Like he has no patience or respect for that. I mean, he I mean, he does respect hard work. Even though he's not, he describes himself as not having uh, middle class work, work ethics. Ethics. Work ethics. <laughs> ethics, yes. Yeah. I found that hilarious because he's so right. You know, like, why do, why do we see Warren Buffett as virtuous? Because he doesn't spend money that he has. I mean, like, it's, it's just, it's kind of stupid, right? And it's completely morally neutral, right? Right. But, you know, have you ever, there's a certain kind of magazine that likes to really flatter and fawn upon businessmen and entrepreneurs. So any successful businessman or entrepreneur, you'll find a, a profile that's glowing and talks about all the good qualities this person had. And to, 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 to Talib, that's all pure hindsight bias, right? The person had to succeed, so we come up with a narrative for why they succeeded. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I love the disrespect. 
right? You know, <laughs> we're taught to treat these people like gods. But um, frankly, I hated it. I always hated like having to pretend that, you know, some some rich guy's uh, shit doesn't stink just because yeah. he happened to be rich. Well, it's totally true. I mean, if you think of like the, the WeWork guy, right? This guy was totally full of it, you know? Like WeWork, you know, it just blew up. It was going higher and higher and higher. And the, the CEO in charge of it all, the founder, I don't, I don't know what his official title was, was just completely wacko. He had these like really bizarre ideas and philosophies underlying the place, right? And everybody was trying to somehow pin his success on these things. And then when the whole thing blew up, everybody said, oh, well, of course it would because he had all these wacky ideas. I mean, like people are just taking the same evidence and using it for both hypotheses, right? Depending on oh, where yeah. you are in the cycle. I, I, uh, I'm not very active in Twitter at all, but I would love to go back to the time when uh, we work blew up and just look at uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's tweets because I'm <laughs> sure they were glorious. Because this, uh, not to digress too much, but this Adam Newman guy, uh, who, who was the uh, founder of uh, WeWork, which is the most eccentric, but to just the most absurd extreme that it really made, when I read about him, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal put on some bio about him. It, uh, like, it made me want to punch him in the face. Like, he's obsessed with private jets and they were, come, like, he, obsessed, you know, and they were they were trying to write this off as, like, some quality that, that made him unique, you know, millionaire C- CEO obsessed with private jet. And, you know, he, he would take trips to Hawaii all the time to go hang out with his surfing buddy that he looked up to when he was a young kid. And the, all these like rare attributes that he had that were just kind of obnoxious. And they were all trying to position them as if like you, like you mentioned, Andrew, as if that's what made him the millionaire. We need these crazy mind to come up with what really ended up being just a glorified real estate company that failed miserably because what people found out, it was a glorified real estate company. And yeah, it should like, be valued as glorified. Yeah. Probably just dumb luck, right? Like, I mean, he made it look sexy. He made it look cool. He, 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 what he would do in investor meetings is people would say, so you're a real estate company. He would say, no, shut up and correct them and say, no, we're a tech company. <laughs> we're a tech company. Thing is, we I feel, I feel like even there, Diego, you're falling for the same mistake of saying like, oh, we know why he fell, all right? Maybe it's just there's a big population of of psychopaths out there who have weird ideas, who are totally bonkers and have weird visions for their companies, right? And I'm this is that who happened to blow up, but there was no really compelling reason for why. I'm not saying that's why he failed. I'm just saying it was nice to see. Someone so smug fail. I, oh yeah, I'm with you there for sure. For sure. Well, um, do you guys want to hear a, a horrifying anecdote about the WeWork guy? Uh, sure. So his wife. Party? Or, okay, go for it. His wife is super into the new age, and she would go around. Uh, oh, this is I remember reading this in the the Wall Street Journal. And yeah, this is, this is all a legend, yeah. of course. Wall Street Journal. Um, she, she would see employees' auras, right? The the supposed energy. colors, energy around them, and she would tell her husband to fire people based on their auras. A thing that happened, a thing that he did. People lost their jobs 
Because this guy's crazy wife said they had bad mojo. That's just insane, right? She's if it, It'll make more sense when she's somehow related to Gwyneth Paltrow. So uh-huh. I think it must run in the family. I don't know. But she's like, her, she's yeah, she's either a cousin or a niece or a sister, something like that. But it made a lot of sense. And then, so they were going to lay off, at the, I forget what percentage of the company. It was going to be like 20% of the company or something. And um, the way he announced the layoffs was uh, they, they would have these raging parties, right? So he organized a raging party. Uh, people were handing out tequila shots. He, he got it catered. You know, waiters were handing out tequila shots. People were getting super drunk. And then he's like, all right, so I have an announcement to make. Um, uh, we've laid off 20% of the company. <laughs> like after hosting this, you know, massive rager. He, yeah. Yeah. Again, anyway. so I, think, I think this is one of the major takeaways from the book is don't fall for this stupid, like in hindsight, it was inevitable fallacy, right? Is that no, 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 no. Like none of these rich people, or I don't know, we, we shouldn't assume as the default that all these rich people were inevitable it was inevitably true that they would make it where they are right and don't look at your own career or your own successes and say well it was inevitable because of these many things which led me there is that there is just this this overwhelming amount of chance everywhere and we have to keep it in mind he actually i remember i I hopped on his wikipedia page to get some background info and he has like a quote at the bottom from uh like some some like lecture he gave at a college campus or some like like graduation speech where he's like never follow advice i never followed advice and look how good it was to me i was like dude i mean that's kind of like you know again everything you said right you're like oh look it worked for you therefore it is it's true right like i don't know kind of contradicts everything he's he's been saying Um, right well every all the (laughs) all the advice all the insights of the book have a, a self-reference problem to a degree, right? So Talib's uh, approach to risk was vindicated uh, after the, the 2008 financial crisis, um, but it's vindicated in hindsight, right? Um, yeah. he's, he kind of uh, bashes his editors a little bit, or maybe not his editors, but editors in general who wanted to change his writing style. And he sort of, you know, he sort of... Uh, you know, he does a little a victory dance in the end zone when he talks about how many books he sold and how successful he's been. But the truth of the matter is, if you apply the insights of the book to his uh, vindication of his own decision to ignore his editor's advice, you could say to him, yeah, it worked out for you. But was it really the best decision uh, when you consider the probabilities? From a probabilistic reasoning perspective, did, was it smart of you to ignore your editors not at all that's the funny thing right is i don't i mean i guess he kind of addresses this and that he's like heck i am not fully rational all the time and i can't follow my own advice all the time either so i just pick the things i really care about and then just go like go all in on irrationality on the other things that i i I find beautiful or fun you know so he probably finds writing really fun you know just like he finds art beautiful and, I don't know, whatever down the line. And he's like, great, you know what? He, he just doesn't waste a lot of time thinking about how to be more rational here and just chases what he wants to chase. So any uh, any other uh, 
Any other takeaways from the book? There was a weird part at the end where he sort of evolved into like, like stoicism as a life philosophy and was basically lecturing us on how to live the good life or something, right? Like how to live a life of honor. I found that kind of funny and a little strange, you know? Um, I don't know what you guys thought about it, but like, he just sort of like jumped into philosophy and he did this before too, when he was talking about like falsifiability as a, as a, as the basis of theories, he was like, he was making a philosophical statement. Right. And like, you know, yeah, Popper says that, but like Popper is not the only philosopher of science who have had ideas on theories. Right. So like there are other ways of approaching theories. So he just sort of states it. Right. And doesn't try to like, argue that much in favor of it so much as he just sort of like like i don't know has an axiom and goes from there i feel like that's how he approached the very end with the stoicism he's like this is the way to live a noble life right and how to how to go down with dignity dignity no matter what happens and just talks about like having to stiff up i don't know not a stiff upper lip i think he hates that specifically but yeah i just found it weird yeah that's the so the book is actually, I highly, obviously we highly recommend it. That's the one, um, the one issue I had with the book is that there are times where it kind of reads sort of a flow of consciousy, so to speak. Like he really jumps from, I mean, full disclosure, I started reading this book back when I was in college, got like three fourths of the way through and then, you know, finals came along and I never got to finishing it. So I audio booked it this time around, but there are times it seems kind of flow of consciousness and he, and especially at the end, he kind of just jumps into there. I'm like, okay, where'd this come from and how's it connect to the rest of the book? <laughs> like it, 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 it almost does kind of uh, contradict a few of the things. Uh, well, I, I thought it contradicted a lot of what he brought up before in the book. And so I don't know what, I don't know what your guys' thought on that is. Well, I, I think the philosoph- philosophical stuff at the end is his way of dealing with the fact that we can't know the future and there's a tremendous degree of randomness in life, right? So that, that that's sort of a hard fact to deal with when you think, well, maybe I'm not control, in control of my own success uh, or not to the degree that I hoped I was. So I, I think the, the stoicism stuff is... is um, it's 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 an approach to to dealing with the reality that randomness has a way more sway over what happens to you than than you'd like to think. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I I don't know I I don't know. Um, he, he actually I think he says that it's the part of the book he's most proud of, and it's the part also the part of the book that least resonated with people. So I. I I don't know what to what to make of that, but but I guess you kind of need it though, right? Because like you said, like it it gives you a path, maybe not the correct path, but a path of how to deal with this. Because the big question, if he hadn't included that, the big question at the end of the book would have been like, well, like what the heck do we do, right? Like, like where do we make conclusions? How do we like be like definitive and conclusive and like make choices against the sea of uncertainty, right? I guess it was him trying to come to terms with that. He's like, hey, this is just the way to live your life with dignity. And, you know, there are, there's a chance you're going to go down, like, in flames. And if that happens, this is how you just do it the right way. Um, 
but it's his personal philosophy, right? So it's like, we can take it or leave it. There's no, there's nothing really strong to back it up. Besides an aesthetic sense, maybe. Well, uh, do you guys have a competing vision for how to deal with, uh, how to deal with the, um, the randomness of life? I mean, I don't have one off the top of my head. I do know that like stoicism is a school of philosophy that a lot of people I know don't like. So I'm going to guess that like if you really push this this stoicism idea far enough, there are like other there's collateral damage, which means that you stop just looking like the cool guy who goes down with dignity and they just like there's other, you know, kinks in the philosophy. So I I, I don't know what they are. I should read into them. But I would hesitate to just like blindly accept stoicism as right. Or well, my, my personal approach is to uh, just not to continue to lie to myself a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so oh. what what I mean by that is uh, you can consider whether or not a belief is true, or you can also consider whether or not a belief is useful. Um. Right. So if you think that you have no hand in your own success or much less of a hand than you'd like to think, to a certain degree, that belief is disempowering and demotivating. Right. So psychologically, it's actually extremely uh, helpful to think that I have a great deal of control over the future um, and fool yourself into into maximizing the amount of control that you do have uh, through your own efforts. Uh, similarly, uh, he talks about the, the bias that people have to attribute their success to skill and their misfortune and downfall to luck or bad luck. Um, that's actually, um, in some ways, that's actually uh, psychologically protective, right? Now, maybe, may, maybe the wisest thing to do would actually be to do the reverse, and to, to, to convince yourself uh, or to allow yourself to, to analyze your life in terms of to, to, to put blame on yourself for the things that went wrong in your life um, and consider what you might have done to at least change the odds. And then um, when you have success, to stay humble and realize that a lot of your success came from luck, right? That's maybe what, what it would be the most uh, virtuous thing to do. But the, uh, the most psychologically satisfying thing to do is the reverse. And then on top of that, actually, what I actually prefer to do is I like to attribute the success of people I don't like to luck. <laughs> that's, um, that's, yeah. Which is, let's be honest, that's like a huge part of the appeal of the book is all these people that were taught to venerate and that are superiors in, in, the, in the capitalist order you know, the seam is taking them down a peg, right? He's saying, well, actually, maybe we don't have to worship these guys, right? Maybe maybe these biographies of Steve Jobs that treat him like a god among men are actually kind of ridiculous. So in a way, it's almost, I mean, Taleb is, is, is certainly a capitalist, but you know, if you were someone who was a critic of capitalism or, or some kind of socialist, you know, you could take a lot of uh, material from this book um, yeah. because it, it it does. I mean, the, the the weird thought I had, and this is like a little overblown, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb 
is to capitalism as Prometheus is to Mount Olympus. Um, Explain. Yeah. Well, so he's... We've built up this mythology around entrepreneurs and successful businessmen. And we're, we're constantly taught to respect and venerate them. And he's saying, well, actually, no. Like, there's, there is likely a huge amount of randomness in any given person's success. And then um, what he does is he, he's, he's – I, I don't believe this is enfooled by randomness. But he does. He does have a certain. He has a. Um, he has a book of aphor- aphorisms uh, called the. Uh, I think it's called the Bed of uh, Procrustes. And uh, one of the aphorisms is that the uh, something I'm going to paraphrase here, but the three most uh, devastating addictions are heroin, carbohydrates. And a monthly paycheck. Um, so, what what does he mean by this? Um, well, he's not a big fan of employment, right? He's got his non middle class work ethics, and um, he believes the kind of the way the way out of um, financial dependence, economic servitude, is. Uh, well, it, it, it's it's entrepreneurship, and he's that's something that he prides himself on and his own ancestors on, and um, he, he he almost analogizes um, employment to uh, he, he. Well, let me explain it this way: he 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 sees the necessity of uh, having employees rather than independent contractors on the fact that you can ruin your employee's life. Like you can exert a lot of control over someone's life who's an employee, right? If if your if your pilot, for example, is an independent contractor, and you're, he's supposed to fly you to Hawaii with your um, your fiance or to Paris with your fiance, and he gets a better bid, and you're only a small part of his business, he's going to cancel on you and take the better uh, the better bid. But it. On the other hand, if the pilot's an employee and you give him a monthly paycheck, it's probably more expensive to have a pilot that you employ. But that person depends on you. They're, I mean, they're, they're in a way, they're enslaved to you. Um, so he, he's got this um, – on the one hand, he's this extremely successful capitalist. But he's telling you like, hey, like – Employment is a way that people control you. And he's also telling you that you don't need to venerate successful capitalists because there's a huge amount of randomness and there's no way to know whether um, their uh, success is due to luck or their success is due to something inherent in them, that their, their generator is good, their process for, de- for developing success is good. So he, he's, he's at once telling you like, Hey, um, the gods are taking advantage of you, and two, the gods aren't as godlike as you think they are. Okay, did that? Oh, I like that. But with the caveat, you know, this whole like, you know, don't be an employee thing works really well if you're like uh, 
philosophically inclined and super smart dude like Nassim Taleb and maybe doesn't work so well if you're just like a normal guy, right? No, it doesn't. You're right. So like, um, I, I hear him. I think it's cool. But like, you know, for everybody to try to follow that advice would be disastrous for most people. Right. But what I, I respect about him is a lot of wealthy and successful people have an ideology of uh, what's good for me. And what's good for me is to have industrious and thrifty and slavish employees. Um, but he's, he's not going there, right? He's not, he's, not, he's, not, he's not here to glorify the Protestant work, work ethic, right? He's, he's just – he's giving you what he actually thinks, right? He's not, he's, not, uh, he's not the Koch brothers explaining to you why, you know – the best thing in the world is unfettered capitalism and, and nothing is more noble than making your boss happy. Right. No, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of free market think tanks that really glorify successful businessmen. And they're constantly urging people to be uh, ever more servile employees. And you know what? I, I just love him that he's just not going there. That's true. It is really great. And this comes back to just his personality, right? Like if he were a, if he was just trying to be nice and make friends, I mean, he wouldn't have written that because he'd be like, oh, well, what about all my good friends at the country club who also have oodles of FU money, right? Like, you know, I don't want to insult them or step on toes. So we'll just tone this down. But instead, he just like has opinions and is just like, well, you know, F you, I'm going to share them. Um, yeah. And just, just just goes for it which for me honestly is like something i've i've been thinking about is like you know like sure there is good reason to be like very courteous in arguments but it's it's just fun to sometimes step on toes and like push things and i do wish people had a little bit more of that a little bit more nasim talib a little bit less oh let's all be nice Well, Diego, any any thoughts on all of that? No, I mean, I I uh, I agree. I actually I I uh, I agree with everything that was brought up because um, I th- I was letting you guys speak because um, I was liking where the conversation was going. Like, yes, I appreciate his philosophy, but yes, you know, not everyone can follow that. Uh, not everyone, you know, it's 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 abundantly clear that he. Um, that Nassim Taleb is very intelligent. And uh, for him, that is the correct philosophy for others. However, um, you know, it would not be the best move for them to kind of uh, take that philosophy on life. So I, uh, I, I definitely enjoyed the book and, you know, for, for it is important. I, I, I get why he paints with a broad brush too. Um, because, you know, he's really trying to get his ideas out there. Um, and, uh, but obviously I don't, I don't even think he, he would say that he wants them to be universal, you know? Yeah, you're right. Um, They're, they're true to an extent. Well, and obviously not everyone can be a business owner, an entrepreneur, um, All right, let's let's wrap it up. I gotta go to sleep soon, unfortunately. Uh, All right, any, any uh, last guys? Yeah, concluding thoughts. 
for me, well, fun yeah. read, definitely worth it. Um, yeah. And it's a good perspective on a world that otherwise I knew nothing about. Yeah, I would agree. It's definitely worth a read. Um, and uh, he had several other books um, that he's published. So also definitely worth taking a look at as well. And uh, um, he definitely, you will come out after having read the book, thinking about things differently in a way that, you know, in a he gives much needed perspective on randomness and, and success and how to go about um you know, how to go about your life. So he's he's popular in the world of finance, isn't he? Right? Even though he dumps on you guys. Like, yeah, he is. Yeah. He is. Uh there's especially um uh a book that we should probably review sometime, uh the the whole concept of anti fragile. Um, you know, we won't delve too deeper into that right now, but you know, you ask a lot of people, what's the opposite of fragile? Uh they'll say rigid or, or tough when that's not actually the opposite of fragile the the opposite of fragile is uh of fragility is something that um as things get more chaotic as things get shaken up more uh they actually become stronger not just don't break but become stronger that's the opposite of fragile anti-fragile and uh you know we will that we I'll, I'll make sure we cover that book in the future because that's another one of his uh Great books and another very interesting co- uh, concept that he brings up. Um, when I, <laughs> it's funny uh, when 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 it was when I was talking about the book for the first time before I'd read it, uh, I was talking um, to a friend about it, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, the opposite of fragile is something that as you shake, it becomes better." And I'm like, "Oh, so like a milkshake, <laughs> but not not quite like that." Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk. I think we'll definitely cover that book. Great. Um, well, thanks for the combo, guys. It, it was a good one. All right. Have a good night, guys. Thanks for. Uh, yeah. Thanks for. Yeah. Have a good one. You too, friend. See you guys. Yep. Hey everyone, this is Swep, and I just wanted to make sure that you subscribe to The Runners F on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you have Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, make sure to follow us there too. See you next time on The Runners F.